we don't really push the envelope. More like open it. This is Litopia, After Dark. The Net's first and foremost literary salon. A feast of ideas for your hungry mind. So pull up a chair and let's talk. Yes, good evening and welcome back to Litopia After Dark. Now, where do you get your news from? Well, there's hardly any shortage of it on the net, of course, but sometimes I must confess to wondering whether there isn't a deeper agenda behind the headlines that we don't always know about. The news under the news, so to speak. Questions about strategy, policy and global objectives. Not always things that those in power necessarily want aired publicly. So, when I'm looking for some insightful analysis on what's really going on, one place I'll always look is the blog of our guest tonight. His name is Craig Murray. He's a former British ambassador. And his life has been so strange <laughs> and had so many twists and turns that he really ought to be made into a film. Actually... A movie version was in development, scripted by David Hare, with Steve Coogan to play Craig himself. And what happened to the film, you may ask? Well, we're going to find out in just a few minutes. You know what's on television right now? Well, Litopia is the antidote. But before that, the other big news from Hollywood this week is that they... Well, they all seem to have run out of ideas. It appears that Hollywood doesn't want great scripts anymore. They want... Franchises, yes, franchises based on, on toys. Think Transformers um, and soon to be, would you believe, Stretch Armstrong. <laughs> Even films based on board games. Battleship is the latest and almost unbelievably, but it's true, apparently, the once great, I have to say that, the once great director, Ridley Scott, is slated to film that creaky old board game, Monopoly. Can you believe it? Well, not everyone is happy about this move towards franchise-based filmmaking. James Cameron, he of Titanic, calls it pure desperation. It degrades cinema. He says, uh, what's next, I wonder? Uh, Bingo, starring Tom Cruise? Well, even if Hollywood has been declared an, a creativity-free zone here on the Topia After Dark, we've still got ideas aplenty. Let's ask our brilliant panellists what board games, or indeed any other bit of mindless ephemera they'd like to see turned into a successful Hollywood franchise. And who would star in it? Dave? Well, yes. I've been thinking about this and I think the obvious um, candidate is, is an update of Rollerball but based on tiddlywinks. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine the action and the gore, you know, razor-edged tiddlywinks, uh, you know, get James Caan to, to reprise his role. You know, he can't do the Rollerball anymore, so he's got into tiddlywinks. It's become a huge game. I think it could be massive. It's that or Kaplunk, one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, jeez. Well, I, I bet they're listening, actually, and you never know, it, it could come to pass. Um, Ali, goddess incarnate of the chat room, welcome to you and every denizen currently there. Insane question. What would you like to see turned into a, a Hollywood franchise? I reckon chess... I think this again, this um, story of conspiracy and intrigue and an attempt yeah. to overthrow the monarchy. Oh. That's what I think it is, basically. It has religious overtones. There's yep. bishops there, castles, strongholds, and the pawns pitching battle. Wow. So, uh, for my king, I think I'd have Russell Black as one of them. <laughs> Sorry, Russell Crowe as one of them, and Jack Black as another. I think Jack good Black choice. would make a really good king. 
so and Judy Dench is a red queen she'd be perfect oh I think you've got the whole thing lined up there <laughs> I'm sure you can make money if you get Tim Burton to direct it you get Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter free <laughs> <laughs> oh that would be perfect actually Helena Bonham Carter white queen fantastic yeah. Very classy. Oh, developing Alan. ideas. Yeah. Very, very yeah, classy. <laughs> Expect nothing less from you, of course. And let, let's ask our, our guest like Craig, Craig Murray. Same question for you, Craig. What would you like to see turned into a Hollywood franchise? <laughs> I'm not quite sure, but the last comment made me think that for the Monopoly, you could have Demi Moore play the old boot. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, excellent. Yes, touche. Uh, but no, I, I, the difficulty is anything you come up with. Hollywood's almost certainly coming up with something even more crass already, but I, I think we should have a movie about the invention of the bagless vacuum cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be like, like, like the Dam Busters, only more exciting. Yes, Craig, I think you missed your calling there, frankly. You should have been the first plane to Hollywood. Um, I know that actually you're not in Hollywood, though. You're, where are you at the moment? Uh, I'm in New Delhi at the moment. And you're researching your next book, aren't you? Yeah, I am. It's going to be a um, biography of Alexander Burns, the uh, the explorer and diplomat. Yes, he, he of the great game. Exactly. It's going to be the... The subtitle, Greatest Player of the Great Game. Great, that's a very, very good title. Once again, I, I think you completely missed your calling, Craig. You should be in Hollywood. I would certainly pay for your, your bagless vacuum cleaner film. Um, and I'd certainly pay for a ringside seat on tonight's top hole edition of the Nets' first and foremost literary sale on Litopia after dark. Join us in the chat room for the Nets' first and foremost literary salon, Litopia After Dark. Intelligent listening for dangerous minds. Craig Murray, you must wonder sometimes how a career diplomat such as yourself, destined, I would have said, for a KCNG or even better, and an easy retirement in, I don't know, somewhere like Hemlon Thames, came to be a rebel, a peace activist, and a thorn in the side of the establishment. Does it give you pause for thought sometimes? Um... Yes, quite often, actually. <laughs> In fact, every, every time I have to do my own washing up, because as a diplomat, you don't, you don't have to do that kind of thing. You get lots of servants and things go along with the job. Um, no, I, I, I do. I, I mean, it, it's true. I, I, I look back at, well, almost all my life and, and wonder how on earth it all, it all happened sometimes, including becoming a diplomat in the first place, I suppose, oh. which was... You know, some would argue it was even more strange than the fact I, I gave up being one. You went to Dundee University, where you got a first in modern history. You were president of the Students' uh, Association there. Um, were they happy days for you? Um, oh, extremely. I, I'm, I'm so cliche, but almost certainly the happiest days of my life. I, I had a wonderful, wonderful time as a student. I, I managed to spin one degree out into seven years, which I must have been enjoying myself. That was a record at the time, wasn't it, actually? <laughs> I think it was. I think it was. I, I did two sabbaticals as president of the students' union, and the university was so alarmed and so worried I might do a third. But they they actually uh, amended the university statute to say that nobody could be. They did indeed, which had to go to the Privy Council uh, to, to get to, to get the statutes for Scottish University changed. Wow. So, so even. Even at the age of 25 or, or, or whatever, the government was having to, <laughs> to do strange things to stop me doing whatever I wanted to do at the time. But, but I should say I had no intention whatsoever of doing a, doing a third time. To... You got your revenge uh, later on, of course, didn't you? Because um, after all the kerfuffle that we shall uh, come to in a few minutes, um, you went back to become rector. Yeah, yeah, I was very proud of that. I, mm. I got um, elected again. Um, <laughs> Two decades later, by, by the students to be rector of the university, and, and that's you know, that's a, a great honour. 
So the diplomatic service beckoned after your university days. Um, why? The, the honest truth of the matter is that a, a girl I fancied was sitting the civil service exams and she asked me whether... <laughs> whether I was sitting the civil service exams. And I said, yes. I, I didn't even know what they were at the time. I said, yes, but if she was doing it, I was going to do it too. Uh, 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 and that was how I accidentally stumbled into the diplomatic service. And you, you got in. Um, first impressions, do you like it? It was very strange. I, I mean, when I joined in my... Um, because the foreign office has different levels of intake. Nowadays, they're more or less all graduate levels, even to sort of almost clean the floors. You have to be a graduate now in the foreign office. But um, in those days, there were two levels of graduate intake, one was sort of mainstream and one fast stream. Um, for the first two or three days of the induction course, we were all mixed together. Then on, I think, the fourth day, those in the fast stream had to get up and leave and go to another room. And I was in the fast stream, so I got up and left. And everyone else who got up and left was, was public school in Oxbridge. I mean, yeah. if you'd actually said, we're all public school in Oxbridge people, please now get up and move to the next room. <laughs> same would, thing, yes. You would have had exactly the same result apart from me. And so as I walked through there, I suddenly thought, hell, I've made a mistake. I'm with the wrong people. Uh, <laughs> I think everyone else was looking at me thinking... They probably thought that too, later. <laughs> yes, I, think that's probably, I think that's probably true. But it was very, very peculiar because I, I, I'm, you were moving into a, a world of the kind, you know, of which I, I, I'd only dreamt. And you were, you were in this building which was genuinely palatial. It was the old, old India office, you know, spectacular Gilbert Scott building being treated... Uh, you know, as this kind of super being in, in a way. And all the people I were with were people whose, whose families had been in, in government and the diplomatic service for, for ages. Um, you know, the other people there had names like Asquith and Tennant and Gorbuv, and they were, you know, the scions of those families. They weren't distant relatives. I, I, I was sitting there amongst the aristocracy thinking... <laughs> who are these people and what am I doing here? I was kind of wondering which century you're in too, I suspect. Uh, that, that's very true. Although, you know, if, if I pretended it wasn't uh, quite enjoyable in many ways, it, it was quite enjoyable in many ways, and you, you felt yourself suddenly important and elevated, which wasn't something which... You know, someone from Dundee University got to feel very often. Yeah. Well, just looking at your, your years there, what you did, I mean, it is pretty obvious you were fast-tracked. You... Uh, you had quite a lot of experience in West Africa, Lagos particularly. You came back and you yeah. um, just sort of skipping ahead through to the, the key bit, the Channel Tunnel Treaty, uh, Convention Law of the Sea, um, 1990 to um, August 1991, Embargo Surveillance Centre responsible for intelligence analysis on Iraqi attempts at evading sanctions, particularly in the field of weapons procurement. Very hot potato, that out of thought. Then on to head of the Cyprus section. And again, Cyprus, another political hot potato. Um, still is in many ways, but in Greece and Turkey. Um, and then after that, I guess it's... Uh, I know nothing at all about the diplomatic service, but it looks like you were being groomed for ambassadorship because you became first secretary at the British Embassy in Warsaw, Poland. Again, very significant time to be there, uh, assisting Poland's post-communist transition process and then more experience of, um, of West Africa. And then UK representative of the Sierra Leone peace talks. Um, all of these things are 
they're not to be entrusted to idiots, really, are they? I mean, they obviously wanted a very safe pair of hands with all of that. Yeah, I think I, I did obtain a reputation for somebody who could get things done and somebody who you could put into, you know, difficult and key negotiations. As, as you say, I'm, <laughs> Iraqi weapons procurement was obviously a, a very key thing right, right at the time of the first Gulf War. Then moving from that into Poland's uh, transition in the early to mid-1990s from communism to, to, to democracy and, and getting Poland into the European Union and sort of safely within the Western camp, that, that, that was absolutely absolutely key as well. So, um, uh, and the Sierra Leone war, finding a way to put an end to that. Yeah, yeah. I think, I, I mean, I did have a series of enormously responsible jobs in, in all of which I, you know, I don't think anyone would, would argue. I, 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 I performed very well in, in, in the view of the, the government. And that's why, um, you know, I found myself in my early 40s as um, not Britain's youngest ever ambassador by any means, but as Britain's youngest ambassador at the time. You were 43, and clearly you had uh, pleased your, your masters to become an ambassador at that early age. You must have felt on top of the world. You must have felt that the world was out there and the diplomatic service was your oyster for, for the taking. I mean, it must have felt terrific. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I felt, you know, inordinately proud, maybe too proud. Um, I, I think sometimes you can get so focused on, you know, career ambition uh, that uh, you don't really consider enough the motivation of why you're doing what you what you do. It, it, you know, climbing the ladder becomes an end in itself. And I, I think to some extent I'd probably got myself into that situation. Uzbekistan, what did you know about it before you went? Not a huge amount. I, I, I went there from being Deputy High Commissioner in Ghana and in the sort of nine or ten months that I had between leaving one job and taking up the other, I had to learn Russian because I had to arrive in Uzbekistan actually able to work in Russian starting from a base of not speaking a word of the language <laughs> in, in nine or ten months. That's quite a tall, tall order. So I, I really absolutely immersed myself in Russian language studies uh, rather than, um, you know, doing an awful lot of background reading on Uzbekistan, which may sound strange, but it's just the way you, you had to do it when you got that small amount of time to, to learn a language. Um, and obviously it borders <laughs> Afghanistan. Uh, and by the time I, I got there, we'd you know already been in Afghanistan for six months or so, um, uh, and was strategically a very important uh, mm. part of the world. And still is, incidentally, isn't it? Because uh, in the, the the latest thing is, of course, how do we get all our troops and resources back from Afghanistan? It's got to go through Uzbekistan, hasn't it? That seems to be the case. I, I'm probably the majority of it will come out through Uzbekistan now because. We've uh, messed things up so badly in Pakistan, which is how the stuff got in, mm. that the chances of getting out, I, I see the Ministry of Defence is saying that there are about 16,000 container loads of, of equipment, plus a lot of armoured vehicles to come out. Mm. There's no way that the UK is going to bring 16,000 containers to Pakistan in current circumstances. Yeah. Uh, and there's really no other way but Uzbekistan. So there you are. I'm just trying to get a picture of you in my mind. A 43-year-old, uh, young, um, pretty charismatic ambassador. Um, yeah, you, 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 missed, you missed the immensely good-looking. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I wouldn't be able to judge that, Craig. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Got no taste in these matters. Um, and, you know, a hotshot, really. Young hotshot. Um, and you, you've learnt Russian. Now you arrive in this place. Presumably having 
prepared yourself to some extent for what kind of country it was. Um, and it's not too difficult to find out, I suppose. Even in those days, it wasn't too difficult to find out that the president was a man accused of presiding over torture, religious repression, forced child labour, uh, murdering its own people, probably something like on par with what apparently is happening in, in Syria. Um, hundreds of protesters killed. Uh, what impression did that create in your mind initially? Was it just a job to be done? It's quite interesting. I'd... I'd been in a number of um, dictatorships and uh, a number of war zones before, but I'd not been in a fully totalitarian country, mm. um, which really is something else. You know, there's a big difference between, if you like, ordinary dictatorship, which is bad enough, um, and totalitarianism. Uh, and a totalitarian system uh, is really quite a shock, and, and nothing can prepare you for it. It feels like like nothing else, uh, you know, the, the fact that people have no access at all to, to outside information, um, uh, the fact that most people have no freedom at all to over what job they do or where they live. I, I mean, not only does Uzbekistan still have the old exit visa system that the Soviet Union used to have, you know, mm. Uzbekistan locks its people in. But you need an internal visa if you want to move from one village to, to, to the town, for example, which, which you won't get because they want to keep you as a, effectively a slave labourer on the, on, on the cotton farms. Uh, and just the kind of crushing power of the state in a totalitarian system is something which, you know, you may think you know what it's going to be like, but until you really feel it, um, you can't get a grip on it. So. Yes. Although I knew about it in theory, it really came as a shock to me once I experienced it. Yes. And your brief, presumably, was, well, Karimov may be a bastard, but at least he's our bastard. Um, we, we've got to keep him happy. Um, and then things went wrong, didn't they? How did they go wrong? Yeah, no, that, that really was my brief. I was told that, you know, he was an important ally in the war on terror, an important ally for our troops in Afghanistan. So... Really keeping Karimov happy and staying in line with the United States who had military bases there. These were the things I was meant to do. Um, but things started to go wrong, <laughs> all right, depending on which way you look at it, when, uh, when I started to gain, you know, first-hand experience myself of what was really happening in the country. And I um, went along uh, to a, a dissident trial, which was advertised as being a trial of an Al-Qaeda cell. And effectively what happened was, you know, I, I turned up in person, which they didn't expect me to do. Seeing the trial, uh, you just realised that actually this was all a fiction. These people weren't actually anything to do with Al-Qaeda and that the, uh, both they and witnesses uh, were making allegations which, when you saw them and heard them, were entirely credible that the information against them was was got by torture and they'd been tortured into into confessions. And it was actually being... The only thing I can compare it to is uh, footage that I've seen on television of Hitler's show trials. Uh, you know, it was that kind of, of atmosphere and it was just chilling to, to be there. And this was meant to be our ally and this was meant to be our war on terror and the CIA and MI6 were accepting as true that these people were Al-Qaeda when, when plainly they weren't. So if you like, my, 
my worldview took a uh, took took a bit of a battering. I, I had to reassess the truth of what was really happening in the world. And your conscience was pricked, and you did reassess the, the truth, and you started to relay the truth to the folk back home. How did they react? Oh, with great with great anger. Uh, I mean, I um, I started to gain you know genuine evidence of what was happening, including uh, an autopsy report on a prisoner who had literally been boiled alive. Um, what, what I got hold of was fo detailed photos of the corpse, very detailed photos of the corpse, which I then sent back to the University of Glasgow Pathology Department, who prepared a report saying that his fingernails had been pulled out and he'd been beaten about the face and the neck, and then he died of immersion in boiling liquid. Um, he, he was a, a political dissident. Uh, and that was, that, that was, if you like, the worst case, but, but scores of other such cases of, of torture by the authorities. And I started reporting these back from London, and I, I, I'll never forget, I got a, um, a very, very sharp letter from a foreign office saying that I wasn't there to, you know, be an NGO or be Amnesty International, and that I was over-focused on human rights to the detriment of British interest, was, wow. Yeah, wow. was the precise terminology I got from the foreign office. What happened after that? Well, after that... Um, I started to pull together the fact that the intelligence that MI6 and the CIA were reporting out of Uzbekistan, um, it, it was all coming from the CIA. MI6 were, were issuing the reports, but they didn't actually have officers in, in Tashkent. Uh, the CIA had, had a lot of officers in Tashkent and were very close with the Uzbek security services and were, and were funding them largely. Um, and the intelligence reports that they were producing were you know, in very large part derived from torture sessions. And I was able to demonstrate that quite convincingly and to also then query the, the truth of the intelligence. I, you know, again, I was able to demonstrate that a great deal of the CIA intelligence on Al-Qaeda activity in Central Asia simply wasn't true. Um, that outraged London, who got very, very upset because they wanted the intelligence to be true. <laughs> because be true. <laughs> that, that, that's what justified our alliance with the Karimov regime, which was necessary for their operations in Afghanistan. So but This is not reality-based uh, foreign policy, is it? It's faith-based foreign policy, really. Whatever you want to be, it's fantasy-based foreign policy. Extraordinary. Yeah, but, but remember, you know, this was happening in... I'm just making these reports in sort of November and December and January 2002-2003. Um, we went to war with Iraq in March 2003. So I was making these reports at exactly the same moment that we were digging out the dossier on weapons of mass destruction in, mm, in Iraq. dodgy dossier. Exactly, which was also fantasy-based foreign policy, also based on you know, false intelligence. And the truth is that at that time, the government didn't want true intelligence at all. It wanted intelligence that said what they wanted it to say in order to justify their policy. And, you know, that unfortunately was the, the corruption of my profession. If but you, you, like. knew, you knew what they wanted. I mean, you were a sharp career diplomat. You knew what they wanted, but you were not giving them what they wanted. Yeah, I'm, I mean, that was a very real dilemma. And I was well aware, um, you know, to the extent that I had um, conversation with my then wife um, after I'd been there only three months or four months and explained the dilemma to her and said, look, 
either I you know, make up a pack of lies, in which case things are going to go very well for this, mm. or I'm going to have to stick by the truth and say this is wrong and Jeez. the torture is wrong and we should stop it, in which case I'm liable to get sacked. Um, and and I, I, you know, I'd only been there three or four months when <laughs> I, I realized that strongly enough to have the discussion with my wife as to what, what I should do in these circumstances. So, so, so yes, I give a decision. Yeah, it was. It, it, it was very... Uh, very difficult and very unpleasant. Did you know that you were committing career suicide? Oh, oh definitely. Very definitely. I, mean, I, I should say that, you know, I wasn't the only one having those conversations. There were lots and lots of people in the foreign office. I mean, I, I was having, you know, this problem over the intelligence coming out from Uzbekistan. Obviously, the people concerned with the dodgy dossier and concerned with the intelligence analysis out of Iraq. And yeah. remember, I'd, I'd previously been in charge of the unit doing Iraq analysis of Iraqi mm. weapons procurement. So, so I, I knew a lot of those people. They were having um, very similar dilemmas. So I wasn't the, I wasn't the only one. Um, but it, it was a very, very difficult period because you'd got a, a government which was determined to pursue war on several fronts yeah. on the basis of lies. And those lies had to be cooked up by the diplomatic service in MI6. And the, mm. the people within the diplomatic service in MI6 had to make up their mind, were they going to be part of it or were they not? So in time-honoured tradition, they did what people usually do under these circumstances, which is they shot the messenger. They shot you. Yeah, uh, very much so. And in fact, they didn't only um, shoot me, they did you know, everything they possibly could to, to blacken my reputation forever. Um, How did they do they that? They really... Um, I suddenly found myself hauled up on 18 disciplinary charges, um, which included, I'm the worst of them, was issuing visas in exchange for sex. Um, I was told that money was missing from a post accounts and, and that there was a charge of driving a Land Rover down a flight of steps and various other rather strange well, charges. Ambassadors but, can do that if they want to. How do they, how do they, <laughs> how do they go about this? I'm very interested in, in actually, do they, do they have a dirty squad that sort of moves in and says, this is what we're going to do and you're going to provide false evidence and so on? I mean, how, how, does, how does it actually work? Yeah, I think that's almost how it works. They, um, they got a guy to come out from um, personnel department uh, and interview all of my staff in the embassy, both British and Uzbek staff in the embassy. Um, and he was given a brief um, that, you know, there'd been various accusations against me and, uh, and he should produce a report. Um, it's worth saying his name because his name's Colin Reynolds. And... Sadly for them, he turned out to be an honest man. And he came back and he said, I've spoken to everybody in the embassy and everybody says all these reports are untrue. Um, which, uh, and he saw me afterwards and he said, look, I'm, I'm, I've been asked to investigate allegations against you. I have been, I've asked everyone, there seems to be no truth in these allegations and that's the report I'm going to make. And he, he did. I then went off happily on holiday while I was on holiday, they sent out someone else, not from the personnel department, who obviously were no good at this sort of thing, but from the political department. And he came back and he said, ah, these allegations have been made. I've been out and everyone says they're all entirely true. Um, so it, it was, um, but it, it wasn't a specific dirty squad as such, if you like. And it was normal, a, a member of normal foreign office, um, highly ambitious uh, staff who, who came and came and did that. Ali, what's the chat room up to? 
Morgan with an E was suggesting that in fact this would make an extremely good story. Um, although in fact you've already written it, really, haven't you, Craig? Both your own story and and the story of what was happening out there. Yeah. No, I um, uh, I, I started uh, writing my book Merge in Samarkand, my first book, um, really as as therapy, to be honest. I didn't actually start writing it for publication. I started writing it because this whole story was so extraordinary and it was so hard to believe myself what had, what had happened, um, what had happened to me and, and what the government was doing. But I decided I really had to, to write it, but to make sense of it myself and, and to make a record of it. So I, I started writing it not for publication. I'd probably written about half of it when I suddenly realised, wow, actually, this is, you know, this is going to be a fascinating read and, and started thinking of publishing it. I was just reading a comment from Crime Afoot um, saying, Samuel Pepys wrote, there is nothing so dangerous as a man that thinks. Um, now, I'm just wondering, Craig, if you, look, <laughs> <laughs> if you were looking back through the retrospectoscope and could have made a radical change in your life um, to end up in a different place and under different circumstances, would you have made that change and where would it have occurred? I don't know. I, I mean, since then, I've started you know, wondering whether I should ever have joined the diplomatic service at all and whether, rather than wasting my life working for government, I shouldn't have been, you know, doing things that would, in which I would be my own boss, if you like, from, from the start. Um, I, I don't think there's any way that I would have stayed in the diplomatic service, kept quiet about torture, kept quiet about false intelligence uh, and, uh, and carried on with my career. Uh, I certainly don't have any regret of that kind. It didn't. It never occurred to me at any moment, really, that I could do anything else. You know, it, it seemed to me throughout that there's some things, and <laughs> boiling people alive is one of them, uh, with which you just can't be associated. You know, if you've come up with that against that kind of thing, you you have no other duty than to fight it. So, so I, I, I don't have any regrets about, um, as some people would say, throwing away my, my career. Whether I should have ever embarked on that career in the first place is the, the only doubt I have. See, somebody else in the chat room is, um, is start talking about David Kelly. I mean, were there times when you, you know, did feel seriously concerned for your own safety? Oh, very much so. Um, and... Well, there are two things, really. I, um, after the government brought all these allegations against me, um, they were, did go and they asked me to resign. And it was a bit like the, um, you know, the old films where you're left with a study in your revolver and expected to shoot yourself. Yeah. Uh, and I said to them, <laughs> bugger off, I'm not resigning. I'm, I'm not guilty. You know? yeah. uh, so... Um, they were forced to then pursue the, these ludicrous allegations for a formal, dis, formal disciplinary process during which I was, um, I was suspended from duty for about four months. In the end, I was found not guilty on all charges, uh, except they then introduced a wonderfully Kafkaesque 19th charge of having spoken about the charges, and the charges were an official secret. So, <laughs> gotcha. So I was found gotcha there. <laughs> I was found guilty of having revealed the fact of the charges, yes. uh, which is, as I say, so Kafkaesque. It's just just ludicrous. But that was deemed not to be a sacking offence. So I was given a final written warning, um, and was going back to work in Tashkent. And the, I think, two days after I arrived in Tashkent. 
Um, I collapsed with um, blood clots in, in both lungs, bilateral pulmonary emboli, I think is the, uh, is the official medical term. And I've got a, a great many yep. blood clots in, in each lung. Um, and I, was that a yep on the medical term? Yeah, I mean, those those are medical stuff. Yes, but, uh, but, <laughs> but I'd um, I'd got a great many blood clots in both lungs, and I, I very nearly died. I, I was flown back by air ambulance to St Thomas Hospital. I was in a coma there for five days, um, and nobody was quite sure what had what had caused it. Um, they couldn't find a cause, uh, but that obviously made me think very much of uh, poor, poor David Kelly. Um, mm. And uh, the, I'm, I'm, and I should say, the doctors at St. Thomas's, who really had no idea who I was or, or you know, why this unconscious person had turned up, of their own volition conducted every toxicology test they could think of while mm. I was unconscious um, because they couldn't work out, you know, what, what, what had made this, this happen. So, so they were without knowing anything of the circumstances, they were suspicious that, that this was an attempt by someone or to kill me off or, or I suppose it could, could have been accidental poisoning. But no, no cause ever has been established as to exactly what happened. Um, then when I finally did leave the office, I had a few uh, documents with me. Uh, and obviously most of this stuff about torture and intelligence had been classified top secret. You don't carry coppers a bit round, but th those documents I did still have on me. The very day I resigned, I put out on the web, on the internet, in order to get it all out there, in order to reduce the incentive for anyone to kill me. If you see what I mean? Yeah, I definitely would do that, yes. Absolutely, yes. Blimey. Uh, I mean, you could easily go paranoid, actually, couldn't you? Yeah, no, no. You, there is a there is a danger of that, and I, I think for uh, for a little time. Uh, and remember, see, I've I've been on the inside, so mm. I uh, and I've had as high security classifications as you can get, and I've been involved in in operations involving espionage. On, on so I know what the capabilities of the security services are from the inside. Yeah. Uh, so knowing that capability, of course. Uh, you're looking over your shoulder a very, a very great deal. Um, I don't do that anymore, but but I, I think there was a worry. When I about a fortnight after I'd resigned, I was staying in the flat of a, a friend in Docklands, um, uh, who because I at that time um, my marriage had broken up, so I wasn't able to go to my home. Um, and staying in this friend's flat, I came back one day. Uh, from going to see my lawyer and the front door of the flat was open and every single electrical item in the flat had been turned on <laughs> by which I mean you know including the hoover the electric toothbrush Jeez. you know all the heaters everything all every electrical item was on all at, all at once including a kettle which meant that whoever had done it you know was signalling to me not only had they done it but they yeah. just left you know yes. within a minute of my of my getting there and they do those things in order to in order to terrify you it's uh, very freaky stuff actually isn't it i mean it's that it sounds funny now you know everything's switched on but my god you know if you came home and found that it would get to you wouldn't it yeah no no it does um and and, it, and they, they know it does which is why they why they do it yeah. um there's also of course the hope that 
they then, uh, it's a catch-22 in a way, because you talk about it, and then people say, oh, he's obviously mad, he's yes. inventing things, he's yes. paranoid. And, yes. and so it, it's yet another way of damaging your, uh, your credibility as well. Yes. What about this, this, this latest MI6 um, Farago? The Daily Mail seems to have got its teeth into it. You know, the um, top uh, codebreaker uh, working for MI6 whose body was found inside a suitcase in a flat not too far from MI6 headquarters and the police were not told about it for a, a crucial six or seven hours, during which time the mail is saying MI6 got inside and completely dry cleaned the flat. No fingerprints, nothing. I mean, do you think that's feasible? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it seems like it like it happened. Uh, and that really was the most extraordinary case mm. where he, they allege that he d zipped himself into a holdall from the inside uh, in order to kill himself. Um, why you would do that, I have no, no idea. Yeah. Uh, uh, and of course, then, as always in these cases, some uh, you know, attempt to denigrate him sexually by saying that you know, zipping himself into a holdall is some obscure sexual practice. Yeah, it's uh, new on me, yeah. <laughs> but not well, new on you, Dave, I suspect. Well, I couldn't possibly say. Um, that was a few years ago, though, wasn't it? The thing you're talking about? No, no, it's, it's, it's very recent. Then it's another one. It's another one, yes. There was one three years ago, body found zipped up in a holdall, sexual, you know, aspersions of a sexual nature cast upon him, and he was... Connected to the security services of some time, you know, a few years ago. I think you're right, actually. Yeah, yes. I think you're right. Obviously, as favoured modus operandi. Like, yes, well, once as accidental, too, as, um, <laughs> yeah, carelessness. This is all actually terribly depressing stuff, in fact, isn't it, Craig? Because if you think about it, we, we're doing the wrong thing. Um, we're doing the wrong thing morally. We're doing the wrong thing politically. We're doing the wrong thing in every way possible. And we're getting dodgy information as well. I mean, there's, there's, there's no good can come of it. Um, People must feel very demoralised inside the diplomatic service, most people, don't they? When they, are, you know, when they are clearly asked to believe that black is white and white is black for no other reason than it's politically expedient to do so. I asked a friend of mine who was you know, involved with, very closely and at a senior level, with Iraq in the lead-up to the Iraq war, um, who is someone who you know, definitely knew there were no Iraqi weapons of mass destruction, and yet was having to work in an environment where he was pretending there were Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. And I said to him, how do you do it? How do you reconcile it with yourself? Um, he said, it's like playing a video game. You know, when you go into work, it's like if you're playing you know, one of these football manager games. While you're in the game, you are the manager of Chelsea. Uh, for the you know, two hours you play or whatever. When you leave, you're not. You go about your daily life. He said, when he walks into the foreign office, there are Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. That's just the fantasy world you move into, and that's the game you are playing at the time. When you go home, you switch off, and of course, in real life, you know they're not. Um, the trouble is, of course, that people actually died. You know, hundreds of thousands of people are yeah. dead. Millions, you know, millions of people have had relatives die. Hundreds of thousands of children have been orphaned. Children mm. have had their limbs blown off. People have been raped and mutilated as a result of these fantasy games. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's one thing to somehow nationalise it that way, to psychologically isolate it from yourself. But mm. can you really uh, remove yourself from the results of what you are doing? Uh, you know, there's a there's a, a moral void there. This is not new, though, is it? I mean, isn't it a kind of cultural inertia? It's kind of a leftover of, you know, a sense of imperialism that we must be right. 
and that we must be in control and we must be this. You know, these things have gone on for many, many years. So it, we expect people should act differently now um, because there are kind of, there's more awareness of broader issues. But the inertia, is, you know, in those sorts of circles has got to be enormous, hasn't I think, it? And there's definitely an amount of truth in that. Uh, interestingly, the, the book I'm researching at the moment on Alexander Burns, um, there's this fascinating episode in which he is conveying five large cart horses up the Indus as a present for uh, Maharaja Ranjit Singh. Uh, and actually, the, the gift of the cart horses is a kind of Trojan wooden horse idea because they chose that gift so they could say it had to go by river in order that they could sound the river and survey the river in order to work out how well you could move troops up and down it in order to invade uh, the countries to which we were giving peasants. Uh, and that was a deliberate plot. And there are archives in which they set out that this is the plot, this is the pretense, and we will survey secretly. And, these are, um, and then when the local rulers tried to refuse, um, the British get terribly upset and expostulate and say, how dare they impugn our honour, these perfidious Indians, why won't they let us come? Um, and it's quite extraordinary. And there's no hint in the letters, because the letters saying these terrible perfidious Indians won't let us come up their river are written by exactly the same people who wrote the letters saying we're going to secretly survey while we're pretending to bring gifts uh. with no apparent sense of their own hypocrisy. Uh, that's the extraordinary thing about it. Absolutely no sign. They, when they said these terrible, immoral, useless local natives are not allowing us up the river and they're impugning our honour, they obviously really did feel like that, despite the fact that actually their honour deserved to be impugned because it was a trick. Um, and that... It, um, that absolutely fascinated me in that, as I say, we saw exactly the same thing with Iraq and it still goes on hundreds of years later. But um, I, I'm troubled, of course, saying it's always happened or, you know, there's always been bad. It, it doesn't, doesn't really help. One would have hoped we would have been improving. Hope, I would hope too. But if you just look at, the, you know, the current government is a good example where, you know, ideological expedience and kind of cultural inertia overrides concerns about the welfare of individuals. You know, I think it was, it might have been Terry Pratchett who wrote something along the lines of never trust a man who claims to be acting for a higher purpose because that means, or, you know, you're basically saying, I will accept this damage to achieve this. You know, it's, it's a means and ends argument, isn't it? The minute somebody says there is, a, there is a greater good, there is a greater purpose to this, that blinds people. As something I, I've learned fairly well, fairly recently how profoundly well a perfectly rational sensible individual can hold two totally or more than two totally opposing ideas in their head at the same time without any concerns at all it's, like what you know, it, it's not a problem exactly to people yes. if they've just got to put themselves in that mental space i can think this and i it's, you know, there's, a, there's almost a kind of a, a subconscious decision that is, is, is almost consciously controlled not to connect this with that and it's, you know, so that they can make the argument the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing in their own head. And people can rationalise themselves out of incredible things if you give them the right tools to do it. Um, Craig, so your first book uh, came out then, Murder in Samarkand, something you started to write really as therapy, but then it then went on to 
get, get life of its own, really, build some momentum. Film rights were sold. David Hare doing the screenplay. Steve Coogan, huge British, very, very hot talent, possibly slightly less hot now, but certainly, you know, a few years ago, he was absolutely the top of the tree. Um, what happened to that? Um, basically, Paramount binned it. Um, Paramount uh, were funding it. Paramount paid David Hare to write the... Um, to write the script. Uh, but they got Michael Winterbottom lined up as director. Mm. Um, and uh, Brad Pitt's uh, production company, Plan B, I think it was, also were to have a, a, a part in it. Um, but they did a film with the same team, essentially, did a film with Angelina Jolie, which was called uh, A Mighty Heart, um, which bombed, rather, at the box office. And uh, I'm with respect, because several of the people involved are friends of mine now. So, so I, but you know, I, in, in all honesty, I thought it was a uh, not the most riveting film I've I've ever seen. I've and never I think, heard of it. Um, well, exactly. And I mean, mm. if you can make a film starring Angelina Lena Jolie, which no one's ever heard of, then you're, you're not doing very well. Um, mm. And I think Paramount saw that as a failure, and so then pulled the plug on on the second film that that team was meant to be doing. Paramount pulled the funding, but. Um, I mean, two things happened. Firstly, David here managed to rescue his film script from Paramount and adapted it for radio, and it went out as a, a BBC Radio 4 play um, uh, in, in which I was played by David Tennant, which wow. was quite flattering. that's hard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, that was good. Uh, it, it, it had one broadcast on Radio 4 and then got buried forever by the BBC. But you, if you go to my, um, to my website, if I can advertise, craigmurray.org.uk, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, you can find, there's a link on my website on the right-hand side where you can listen to David Tennant <laughs> playing, play, playing me. Um, but the the film has sort of come alive again. Um, to be, uh, you know, Steve Coogan, um, I think has a genuine determination to play the role. I, he, I, I think he he loves Murder in Samarkand. He's fascinated by the by the story, and he's been working on it for for years. He's never given up on it. And now uh, the rights are now owned by what is effectively his own company, Baby Cow. Um, having said that, probably lots of other people who own Baby Cow too, who will be upset with me. But but uh, Steve Coogan's production company, Baby Cow, now now owns the rights. There's, there's a new script by a, a screenwriter called Don McPherson, and they um, they had a uh, a finance meeting just last week, I think. While I, while I've been in India, they had a finance meeting. They're, they're going on location scouting now and they're hoping to start filming within the next year so, so i think the film is still still coming on that sounds quite promising steve Coon, of course actually shares the same libel lawyer as tim spicer did you know that <laughs> no but, uh, yeah. uh, as you're probably aware um tim spicer's libel lawyers had the plug pulled on my on my second book. Well, i was going to ask you, okay so you then <laughs> you know you the success of your first book you moved on to, to the second book the um, extraordinarily titled The Catholic Orangeman of Togo. Great title, uh, total cognitive dissonance there. Um, you got yourself a publishing contract, then what happened? Yeah, no, I, I, I wrote The Catholic Orangeman, of, of which I, I should say I'm very proud. I, I mean, uh, Murder in Samarkand tells you know, this amazing story of torture and extraordinary rendition and what happened to me, whereas The Catholic Orangeman is really distilling my experiences in, in Africa. Uh, and I... I believe it's a, a much better written book. It wasn't written in such a you know, blinding heat of passion as Murder in Samarkand was written. And I think it's 
well, I hope it's very funny. Um, the the editor I had at, um, at at Mainstream said that she fell literally fell off her chair laughing at one stage, which hmm. was uh, which was quite good. Uh, but I hope it's both funny and contains a lot of a uh, lot of wisdom. But we we got pretty well to the publication point when. Uh, Tim Spicer, the mercenary commander's lawyer's uh, shillings came in and made all kinds of debts to the publisher and in the end terrified the publisher into into pulling the book. Um, the publisher asked me to make certain changes I wasn't prepared to make. Um, and they said, well, we won't publish it as you as you've done it. And I said, mm-hmm. well, in that case, you're not publishing it. And, and sadly, I had to pay them back their money. Oh, did uh, you? Which wasn't oh, very nice. Dear. Oh, God. Yeah. Yes. And... Uh, uh, but then I, I self-published, um, I, and self-publication, as I'm, uh, I'm sure your program knows extremely well, is a, a very foolish thing to do because no matter, I mean, Merge in Samarkand sold, uh, it sold about thirty thousand, which for yeah. UK nonfiction is, is pretty good. Yeah. Um, but despite that, the Catholic Orangeman, uh, as it was self-published, I just couldn't get bookshops to take it, uh, despite doing everything I could possibly think of. I managed to get a, a few into, you know, foils and daunts, but, but Waterstones wouldn't look at it. Uh, and uh, most, and, you know, just contacting all the different independent bookshops is quite Was it quite the legal work. threats that made it so difficult to, to get physical distribution? I don't believe so. I don't think so. I think it's simply that if you self-publish it, it it's very, very hard. You're, you're pretty well closed out if you self-publish. That's quite difficult, but there are um, lots of success stories. I mean, particularly, yeah, particularly digital. I mean, is it available as an e-book now? Um, kind of. I mean, it, it came out before e-books were quite as big as they are now. I did right. make it available, in fact, and you can still find it in places, I think, that though it's hard to find. And shillings have been going around trying to close, close it down on the web. But I did make it available absolutely free of charge um, online. Largely because it's about Africa, and I wanted African people, many of whom can't afford to buy the book, to be able to, to read it. So mm. those with internet access would be able to get at it. So there are three copies of it still that can be tracked down tracked down online. Um, I, Sounds like I you're say, telling they, people to pirate no, your e- book here, actually, Craig. <laughs> 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 you know what you should do? You should have a quiet word with Steve, actually. Have a quiet word with Steve Coogan, see if he can speak to lawyers and hopefully they won't make your life quite so so difficult. Of course, that is a big problem with um, with, with lawsuits. I mean, you know, publishers do tend to, if they see, see a legal letter, they do tend to just pull back, unfortunately. Well, and what my publisher said to me was that they they didn't doubt my word at all and they didn't actually doubt when they'd seen you know, all the evidence that they could win the case. But it, it could cost them a million pounds to, to fight the case. And that Spicer, mm. who, who had made an absolute fortune by running mercenaries in Iraq. You know, he made hundreds of millions from mercenary contracts from the British and American governments in, in, in Iraq. Uh, Spicer could afford that kind of legal battle. And my publisher, you know, if the maximum money my publisher would ever make out of my book might be, you know, 100,000 or 150,000 quids profit. So to risk a million-pound lawsuit just wasn't worth it. Yeah, they do have libel insurance, of course, but um, I just wondered on this whole question of mercenaries, because they're very, very sensitive people. You know, you mustn't hurt their feelings. I think possibly you have hurt their feelings, Craig. They don't like to be called mercenaries anymore. They call, I don't know, PNCs or something like that. I got that right. Yeah, I think... 
I think hired killers is a good... Oh. <laughs> Do you see... I mean, that's, this is the way the world is going, isn't it? In a, a British, American, wherever you go. Uh, the armies are being privatised and some people are making lots and lots of money out of that. I mean, is there anything good to be said about that, in your view? No, not at all. I, I'm, I suppose it's not surprising in a way. And we're privatising away <laughs> the guts of the health service at the moment. So if you privatising, keeping people alive. You might as well privatise killing them as well, I suppose. But, but, but it, it, it. Wasn't this foreshadowed in Catch-22? <laughs> Where, is, is it Milo, whatever his name is, doesn't he um, franchise out um, the American planes to the Germans <laughs> to bomb their own airfield? He actually takes on the jobs for the Germans and makes a nice profit out of it. I suppose there's some logic there somewhere. Um, Ali, uh, let's let's cut back to you. I see Benesi has said um, if Craig's story was made by Hollywood, he'd probably be pay played by Jason Statham. That's pretty cool. And there'd be explosions. It's got to be explosions. Um, what else is the cherub saying? And can we have a run through for, for some titles for tonight? Yeah, sure. Um, the reply to, to Benesi's comment was by Crime, who said that they'd have to make a board game out of it first. Yes, that's right. So there we are, yeah. Craig. <laughs> That's your error. Yeah. Uh, also said um, they were very impressed by how calm and rational you are, Craig, in discussing these these terrible things. Yeah, you so. are actually. I mean, ha have you always been thus, or have there been moments in your life when it's just been so much turmoil you haven't known where to turn to, and even if you've got any friends? No, I um, I think I I always have managed to appear very calm and rational to people, even if I'm not I'm not inside. I mean, one thing you'll learn, um, you know, if you do read my books, is that actually uh, <laughs> there are plenty of um, explosions and gunshots and things. And I maybe it's just the way I did diplomacy, but I, I found myself quite often in a situation where people were pointing loaded guns at my head at various times and things. Mm. Um, there's one time recanted in the um, Catholic Orangeman when I was in a, a radio station uh, in Africa, which was the government was then trying to close down. At the moment they tried to close it down, um, I was there with Nigel Jones MP, who's now Lord Jones of Cheltenham. Uh, the reason we were there was we, we rather thought something like that might happen, so we were there to try and stop it. But we did end up with people coming in and waving loaded guns at our head, people who, who were perhaps fueled up on drinks and drugs and things. And uh, Lord Jones has written up the story and he talks of how amazingly calm I was. Um, and actually, I was absolutely <laughs> terrified. I'm, I'm fascinated. And I'm, I, I'm often told I seem very calm and rational, but I'm, I'm a terrible bundle of emotions inside. That's the trick there, isn't it? Ali, any more questions and then some titles, please? Um, Craig, do you feel that your diplomatic stance besmirches other diplomats by implication? I mean, the ones who stayed, are they... Um Less moral fibre, put it that way. I think uh, it's a difficult question because you know I've often wondered why other people didn't more other people didn't resign. Um, Elizabeth Wilmshurst, the Foreign Office's deputy legal advisor, resigned, for example. Um, her boss, Michael Wood, um, he told Jack Straw that it would be illegal to go. Uh, to war with Iraq, that was the um, Foreign Office legal advisor, the, the big boss. Um, and Jack Straw tried to get him sacked, but but he didn't actually resign. Uh, and, and yet, you know, Michael's a very honourable man. Um, so, 
it's hard. You know, I know these people personally, so and many of them I, I like, and it, and it does seem at the end of the day, but very, very few people are willing to actually, you know, give up their careers. And of course, people worry about their mortgage and their kids in boarding school and all the other things that, you know, the baggage you gather in life. And that, that tends to make it difficult for you to, uh, to easily resign. But there's also this terrible abuse of patriotism, you know, particularly in times of war, even if you believe the war is bad, the fact you're going to war, this, this awful idea that we all have to rally behind our troops and nobody can any, ever say any word of criticism because of morale at the front line and all that kind of thing, that actually has a, a remarkably strong effect on people, unfortunately. Do you want the titles? Craig, Craig, listen carefully to the titles of tonight's show. You are going to have to choose a suitable title. Hopefully, there is a suitable title there. There may not be, in which case we're completely <laughs> stuck. But, um, OK, so um, run through them, Ali. Let's go. Craig, it can be a completely unsuitable title. Oh, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> no, it is. Um, Mind the chairman. So, we've got the Dyson Conundrum. Hasbro, the movie. Wait, 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 where does that come from? The Dyson, what does that, that mean? That comes from the beginning, when we're having board games and oh, stuff. Oh, fair enough, uh, We yeah. got sucked yeah. up into something. I can't we did get sucked anyway. up, yeah. mm. um, Matchbox, the Fast and the Curious... Board games make boring movies. Right. No risk. <laughs> we'll get to the political ones in a bit. No risk in Hollywood. Uh, the Game of Life in Seven Parts. There you are. Little Shakespearean oh. reference there. That's pretty good. Uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, board game movies for plastic actors. I think that's just a slant at Hollywood. Yeah. Charlie Sheen's Pictionary in 3D, rated at 18. <laughs> uh, Diplomacy is not always Ferrero Rocher. <laughs> Don't shoot messenger, just poison him. Mm -hmm. There are your clots coming. Yeah. Uh, truth stranger than fiction? Nope, they're the same. Oh, I like this one. Craig Murray from Diplomat to Time Lord. So there you are. Yeah, that's the reference to David Tennant, of course, like, isn't it? Doctor Who, Zillian. yes. Yeah, what else we got? Undiplomatically disinformed and dismissed. And our man in the cold. Our man in the cold. What? Well, there you go. A plethora of choice there, Craig. Well, what, what tickles your fancy? <laughs> quite, quite a few, mate. I, I, I quite like... Uh, well, I, I like the Dyson conundrum, but, but then that would really confuse people. It totally we're talking about everybody, yes. <laughs> Get sued by Dyson <laughs> but, or something, I should say. Yeah. That's but, never stopped and, and, No, it hasn't. And, uh, <laughs> I like to don't shoot the messenger, just poison him as well. But, but I think I think actually the last one, Our Man in the Cold, has a wonderful Le Carre thing yes. to it. I, think oh, I thought you were going to go for that. It's classy, isn't it? Who did that? Uh, that's Crime of Foot. Good old Crime of Foot. Congratulations. Yeah, Crime of Foot has contributed quite a few good titles uh, over the years, yes. Mm. Um, uh, I think we could have uh, carried on all evening, actually, Craig. Um, I mean, you are a man of principle, and I think the real tragedy is we don't have more people like you uh, running our diplomatic service and contributing to the political process. And if we did, we did, maybe the world wouldn't be quite so screwed up as it is, I'd like to think. Craig Murray, thank you so much. Um, the website is what? So craigmurray.org.uk. .org .uk. Uh, a jolly good site there. You know, Craig blogs very regularly about current events. If you want to know about you know what really is going on behind the scenes, I do, I do totally recommend it. Ali and Dave, thank you both for being, well, what you are which is something up the Indus, I think. I jotted that little <laughs> phrase down. I wasn't able to use it, but I'm using it now. <laughs> We've had so much fun. Let's take it up the Indus this time again next week. Good night, everyone. Good night, night. night. Good night. Good night.
Latopia needs your help. For the cost of a cappuccino a week, you can help us stay on the air. Click on the Support Us link now.